Advertising fraud is easy, legal, and extremely profitable. A fraudster can set up a website, scrape content from the internet, and run programmatic advertisements against that website. The fraudster can then purchase bot traffic. These bots will visit the page, consume advertisements, and return profit to the owner of that page. In a past life, Shalin Dar worked for a company that set up these types of advertising fraud schemes. He was fascinated by the industry in the same way that plenty of people, including myself, get fascinated with the fast-moving market dynamics that are enabled by modern software, whether these people work in ad tech or in the financial sector. But over time, the novelty wore off, and Shalin realized how big the fraud problem is and how much it is hurting people. Shalin works at the DAR Method, a company that he founded to do advertising technology consulting and analysis and research. And in today's episode, Shalin and I discuss how bots and the poorly aligned incentives lead to systemic failures and financial loss for the brands who are purchasing online advertising. This is one of my favorite shows that I've done because Shalin speaks on something that many people don't speak on, which is the depth of advertising fraud. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and if you work for a company where you can do something to change the situation in advertising fraud, you should look at doing that. Shalin Dar is an ad fraud specialist who founded the Dar Method. Shalin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I've been doing these shows about advertising fraud, and I've really been looking forward to talking to you because you have spent some time in the industry as a, I guess you would call it a black hat. You know, you were involved in some advertising fraud schemes, uh, although, you know, you could argue that anybody in, who's in the advertising business or the online advertising business is probably engaged in some sort of fraud, whether or not they know it. Um Let's let's start there. Can you explain one of those advertising fraud schemes that you were involved in? Sure. So basically, this is the simplest form of advertising fraud is creating a website, uh, getting ad tags from an ad exchange uh, like Google or AppNexus or any company that has a seat on those exchanges, and then purchasing web traffic that loads the page, generates ad slots and those so those ad slots get sold into the exchanges in real time through uh, what we call programmatic advertising. So a lot of that traffic that you end up buying is robotic and you only purchase as much as you want and that way you basically control your cost, revenue and profit. So just so listeners are clear, the process is you stand up a WordPress website, you throw up some content on the site like let's say you make it um you know beefrecipes.com or something and then you just scrape the internet for things about beef recipes and and then you make a site that looks convincing and then you you insert little javascript blobs that you get from google or AppNexus or these other advertising distributors you put those on the website uh which causes ads to appear whenever a a uh a consumer visits that website and then whenever a consumer visits that website they start to see ads maybe they're targeted about people who you know advertisers that want to reach people who are interested in beef 
and then you buy bot traffic to come to the website, quote, view those ads, and you make money on the arbitrage. You make money off of those ad impressions that are served to the bots. Exactly. The one small thing is it's not that the advertisers are interested in advertising to people who have an inclination for cooking beef. It's that they want to show ads, uh, especially retargeting ads. So retargeting is kind of the lifeblood of ad fraudsters because, um, you know, basically when when you're the actual website, you want to get as high ad revenue as possible. And the highest rates are paid by advertisers that are trying to complete a sale. So if I am shopping for, let's say, a Gucci purse online, and then I exit my shopping cart before completing the purchase, I'm going to be retargeted by their campaign. And they're going to pay a very high rate because they want to bring me back and complete the sale. So the advertisers most of the time have nothing to do with the content. So the you would have these bots, and these bots might go to, you would have the bot, like if you were programming a bot, it would be smart to make that bot go to Gucci.com, put a Gucci purse in the shopping cart, oh, of course, and then like go to the end of the shopping cart process, and then drop off, and then go visit BeefRecipes.com so that you get really high uh, ad impressions on that retargeting. Right. And, you know, it's Gucci purses are just one example. You know, look at kind of high urgency purchases. Let's say a flight ticket. I go to Emirates. I look at first class tickets to Tokyo and then I leave before making a purchase. I'm going to start seeing Emirates ads for flights to Tokyo as soon as I leave. The ecosystem is really complex and I think we can boil it down by starting with the sucker in this process. The sucker in this process is essentially the company who is paying for the ad impression. Like, So the advertiser, maybe it's Frito-Lay or Procter & Gamble or Emirates or Gucci or a Star Wars movie. Their motivation is to get a message viewed by a consumer. Do these advertisers understand how much of their advertisements are being viewed by bots? Uh, no, I don't think so. Not on a mass scale, uh, not yet at least. So, you know, part of the thing, and there's two parts to that question, I think. First is how much awareness is there on the advertiser side? And second is, does anybody know how much is actually being viewed by bots? And I think both of those are really important questions because the awareness side, I think, is going to be a gradual process, uh, just, you know, with education and kind of being willing to admit that things have not been done the smartest way for the past 10 years. And I think that's a tough proposition, but I think it's happening slowly. And I think a lot of the credit goes to um, advertising trade bodies, so associations that actually represent um, brand advertisers. Because they know, oh my goodness, we are wasting so much money. I mean, we have to be digital because obviously they're like, because don't get me wrong, uh, I, you know, I've done these shows on advertising fraud. I don't think advertising is useless or bad. And I mean, you and I have had conversations around this. It's just that it is impossible to audit. That is what's so fascinating about this industry is that you have this herd mentality where we're just like spouting numbers and those numbers aren't really based on anything convincing. Right. Um, so the thing with, um, you know, this 
it's it's that if you look at who wants to actually have these conversations is you know the constituency of these uh, trade bodies is these brands, and so it's actually the association's job to make them aware of these things, make their make sure they have enough information to do their jobs well. Otherwise, you know, there's no reason to pay their membership dues. That's why the association exists in the first place. And like you said, with you know, the reason they do advertising in the first place is because it works. You know, they wouldn't have spent so much money every single year on advertising if they weren't getting some return. Now, where I you know want to point out the problem is the reason you should take fraud seriously is you know you're spending X amount of money on advertising based on a return of you know a certain amount. Now, if you know that forty percent of X is going to waste, you could be spending sixty percent. Continue to spend that sixty percent and get that same return that justifies a you know that entire budget. And if you spent that entire budget more safely, you know, in a smarter, more calculated way, a more cautious way, you could just be getting more return long term on your advertising budget, which would give you the true value of the media that you're buying, and not just you know accept that there's a certain amount being wasted, and I'm just going to depend on all these different chains in the ecosystem to tell me, you know, how effective my advertising is working. What are those steps that you can take? So if you say, if you know, if you're Gucci and you say, I'm tired of spending so much money on, you know, oh, okay, I get a higher volume of impressions in the report that gets delivered to me, but I know that some of that, like a large percentage of that is bot traffic, what are the steps that you take to clean up your your impressions and how can you measure that? Like, how do you, how do you know that you're getting more clean impressions? So you, you know, there's, there's no on paper just way to say, okay, you know, I'm going to implement this one process and now I'm going to get cleaner impressions or that I'm going to know that my impressions are cleaner off the bat. Part of it has to just do with auditing your supply chain. So, you know, if you're a brand advertiser, you go to your agency and you say, Hey, what are you guys doing about fraud? And a lot of times the only answer that you'll get is we have a verification solution where we're implementing a pixel across a campaign and we're measuring the quality of the traffic that way. That has become problematic as a sole solution because there's traffic available to websites that is designed, this robotic traffic is designed to pass the major filters used by the advertising industry. So that is not going to be a solution on its own. Second, you know, part of this supply audit is you're, you know, for these digital media buys, your agency is going to be using a demand side platform or a trade desk. So within that DSP or trade desk environment, who are all their supply partners? So, you know, there's, again, there's now tons of ad networks on the other side, there's supply side platforms. And then there are, you know, just kind of what um, are these pools of inventory in these, uh, what's called private marketplaces in the major ad exchanges. So you have all these different layers of supply coming into the funnel of a trade desk or a DSP, and then the campaigns from the advertiser side are being executed through that funnel. So it's important for the advertiser to audit the agency, the agency to audit the DSP, and then the DSP to continually audit all of their supply partners. Because fraud is not, you know, a moral problem. It's not like, you know, it's, we, I think the industry gets too fixed on, you know, the morality of it. Um, and, you know, 
the technical aspects of it rather than looking at, okay, it's a just, it's a purely financial motive. And also that it's a problem with the supply chain of advertising. That's how this traffic is coming through. It's not that the traffic is just appearing, you know, on the advertiser side, these fraudsters, the people creating this traffic, the people buying this traffic are purchasing it and using it to exploit the way that campaigns are executed on the advertiser side. So like we talked about retargeting, they know that they're going to get the most money from looking like, you know, purchase intenders. So that's how they gear their bots to behave. You mentioned this verification stuff. Um, so I did a show with a verification company. Um, I was a little skeptical of their techniques, basically because, I mean, you you listened to the episode we were talking about this earlier, and the technique is like, we've got this way of, we use biometrics, and we we track, you know, we, we build a model for what is a human and what is a bot. And, I mean, you, and listeners can listen back to that episode and, and like, hear it for their themselves and but you know the thing is it's like the and what you told me on the phone a while ago was that these models for verification so basically the way a verification company works is you know ad traffic goes to beefrecipes.com before ad impressions are served you have a you have a call out to this verification company that says hey is this person that just landed on beefrecipes.com a real person. So you would have a pixel that gets processed first and, you, and it makes a call out to are you human and says, hey, can you check this, if this person looks like a human? Um, and But what you told me on the phone was like, these, this, this is basically a subjective model that they've developed. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's based on some things that look kind of objectively like what a human is or, or a human is not. But in my conversation with are you a human... I was just unconvinced that these things cannot be easily spoofed by somebody who wants to spoof it. And, and, and you know, one of the counter-arguments was, you know, yeah, maybe they could do that, but they're not doing it. And I was like, okay, so where's your proof of that? He's like, they're not doing it. You know, they're going to do... They're going to do stuff like Uber fraud or uh, payment system fraud or something that's higher return. And I was like, no, ad fraud is massive returns and nobody's going after it and it's been around like it's been you can you've been able to exploit this for like a decade nobody's gone after it in the decade it's like a really safe thing to invest in as a fraudster uh, am i mistaken about anything that i just said no, no uh, i mean it, they have every incentive to do so and so there's two things i want to point out with these incentives on the fraud side is first you know in that basic cat and mouse scenario of you know a bot detector versus a bot creator the bot detector is operating as a legitimate business. Uh, they have employees that have, you know, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, work hours. They go home at the end of the day. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, be overly assuming, but generally they are paid a fixed salary. Just to give you like a very, you know, hands-on scenario, that's the situation for a bot detector. Then if you look at the bot creator, they are what we call black hats. They have no set work hours and they are directly compensated for how effective and how scalable their bots are. They are, they're, they're more incentivized financially and with their time to make sure that their bots are bypassing these filters. 
Now you can get into a debate on who is more skilled. You know, maybe they have enough, you know, white hats that kind of counterbalance the uh, skill levels. But if you look at time and money incentives, they're much heavier on the bot creator side. So it's not that the incentives aren't there. Second is, you know, with the incentives, what are the consequences? And so far, ad fraud does not break any laws. And the overwhelming majority of the time across the world, you know, it's just starting to change slowly. It doesn't even violate contracts. Most contracts in advertising don't have clauses for invalid traffic. So there's not even civil consequences there. That's And that is what is so crazy to me is because, you know, you might say, you know, if you're going to be a sketchy fraudster and you're going to take advantage of markets, why wouldn't you just go to Wall Street? And it's like, well, no, no, it's actually much easier. And you were telling me some of the returns that you were seeing as a black hat. And I was like, that is, it was astounding how much money you can make as just the, 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 uh, the, the entrepreneur running beefrecipes.com. And, you know, it, it's not very scrutinized. You know, we, it's not scrutinized, right. Most of the industry is like, oh, okay, you run a website. Right. Okay, that sounds legitimate. And to me, you know, I'm so skeptical at this point that if somebody has a, you know, like let's take this, not, I mean, no offense to anybody that has a recipe network, but let's say somebody has a network of recipe sites and, you know, they're claiming to have 30 million visitors a month. I'm very skeptical until I can see the actual traffic reports and the sources and the you know growth and you know the fluctuate. There should be fluctuations, you know. And a lot of times when I do audits for clients, I see just like continual growth, uh, lack of fluctuations, no seasonality. Know, the most no, I mean actually you do seasonality, and seasonality is actually a sign that something is wrong because if you look at how ad budgets are spent. Um, they usually reset somewhere in January or February. So from February, let's say, all the way through December, they're just growing. Ad budgets are being spent at a higher rate and a higher rate and a higher rate. And then you get to October, November, December, which we refer to as Q4. Just, you know, that's when so much of that holiday spending is done by consumers, which means you're going to promote lots of products to them during that time. So that's when ad budgets are spent at the highest rate. If somebody's, if somebody's website starts at very low traffic in February and just continues to grow at higher volumes, higher volumes, higher volumes, higher volumes, all the way through December, and then resets the next year again at February, that is a big, big red flag. Because that basically tells you that they're buying traffic to keep up with growing ad budgets. Because, you know, to them, it's a, you know, profit game. So why would I buy traffic that I don't need? It's, it's pure arbitrage. Right. What is the role of Google and Facebook in this ecosystem? <laughs> um, well, they are the biggest players in the ecosystem, uh, at least for the time being. So, you know, if you go with the assumption that I go with, which is that fraud is everywhere, they probably benefit the most from its existence just financially. You know, they obviously do care about quality. Google, you know, has taken steps. I'm not going to say that they're doing everything they can. I'm definitely not convinced of that because if Google and Facebook went out of their way to get rid of all the fraud, I'm sure there would be a lot more done. But, um, you yeah, know, maybe you know, that just hasn't been much of a concern to them. 
Google obviously does just kick off some bad supply partners. If there's blatant fraud detected, they will just kick them off. And, you know, basically they strong arm these fraudsters to basically just say, all right, we're just going to shut off your receivables. So even if you you know, have three months of receivables, let's say half a million dollars, they'll just shut it off. And nobody is going to be stupid enough to take Google to court over that. I mean, they'll bankrupt you just trying to you know, get a hearing. So let me then with Facebook. Sure. No, no, go ahead. Uh, and then with Facebook, you see that, you know, they, it's not that they've shown any hesitation to rid their network of fraud because in 2014, they made an acquisition of a company called LiveRail, which was a video ad network. And, you know, for me and other people that were on this Black Cat side, we knew LiveRail as the place to sell garbage video traffic. You know, that's where you could sell garbage traffic for video ad CPMs, which were enormous, you know, talking 10, 15, 20 dollars per thousand impressions. And then they bought it and we were like, oh my God, they're buying that? How much? 5 million, 10 million? And then we, I mean, we were blown away when it was 400 million dollars. Said, okay, you know, maybe they're going to turn around. Maybe they obviously don't know what's in there. Then in early 2016, they just shut it down. I mean, it became apparent to them internally that this is, you know, rife with fraud and they just shut it down i mean you know there was no hesitation like some press release of okay we're going to try to turn it around i mean 400 million dollar acquisition just they just shut it so down. so that's arguably a good sign though right like that's that's arguably a sign that they're like oh my goodness this is problematic we need to we need to implement some fixes and but it shows you the lack of understanding in the first place that they even made the acquisition so that's where i have this skepticism of how much they could be doing internally to even combat the problem when you're able to make a $400 million acquisition of a network that was known, you know, across the industry with the, you know, if you ask the right people, they would tell you this is not a good purchase. But, you know, according to normal advertising metrics, it passed all the checks, number of impressions, number of publishers, uh, you know, average CPM, fill rate from the advertising, like, you know, it passed all those basic checks. But if you're doing quality control with the assumption that ad fraud is a, you know, it's out there, then you would have entirely different checks. And I don't think that was in place. Sort of uh, argument in Google and Facebook's favor is that you go on Gmail and you still get spam. I mean, you, st- uh, you know, less and less over time, but you still get some spam. And <clears throat> Gmail is a very simple well-formed interface experience. It's just email. It's, you know, mostly text. The open internet is a much richer, more complex experience. You could say the same thing about a social network. And so I think an argument in Google and Facebook's favor is if you can't completely prevent spam in something as narrow as Gmail, where Google's incentives are much more in the direction of we want to prevent spam as much as possible in an email environment, you know, it kind of is a strong counter-argument against, like, Google and Facebook being nefarious, uh, profit-hoarding um, fraudsters themselves, right? Like, is is that is that safe to say? Um, yeah, sure. I think that's safe to say. You know, I think, I think in our conversations about this, it sounds like you wish there was more, I don't know, publicity about, from Google and Facebook about this? I mean, would that be... Do you I think mean, that's I mean, given that they're... More transparency? Too, yeah, um... I don't think Google should shy away from sharing what they're doing about fraud. 
Um, you know, but the thing is, Google also is on so many websites. Um, you know, Google's advertising tags are on so many websites. And for smaller advertisers, let's say, you know, a dry cleaning store, uh, storefront, or let's say a, you know, specialty butcher shop, those small advertisers, they're not going to come to a digital ad agency and then, you know, come up with a programmatic retargeting campaign. And this. the majority of them go to Google because it's the most accessible. And it's also the most, you know, it's the most trusted name that they know of. It's like, hey, I already have a Gmail account. And, you know, I just log in with my Gmail ID. I create a, you know, AdWords campaign. Or, you know, if I'm a bigger advertiser, I use AdX and, you know, just put in my ads and, uh, you know, pick what type of websites. And it's very seamless. But if they, you know, if those small advertisers are not made aware of, okay, hey, this is how you do quality checks. And this is how you make sure that, you know, you're reaching the right people. Uh, I mean, let me take that back. They do help them reach the right people. But smaller advertisers are not made aware of the levels of fraud. And if you take the assumption, let's say a conservative estimate of 25% of traffic is fraudulent in some way, the majority of advertisers are, you know, this, you know, conglomerate of small local, you know, businesses. So I'm a lawyer or I'm a, an accountant or I am a, you know, insurance broker or I am a butcher shop or I'm a dry cleaner. You know, there's so many of these campaigns in there all over the world. Um, because I mean, Google, if you go into Google's, um, campaign portal, you can like draw a line on Google Maps around city blocks for who you want to target. You know, it's very localized. This is not, you know, Gucci is not going in and saying, okay, well, I want to, you know, advertise to this city block of San Francisco. You know, that's going to, that's geared towards local advertisers. So, so wait, there's, so, so, there's, so there's fraud everywhere. There's local advertisers bearing the brunt of it. So the smaller players, you're saying, make up more of the net ad purchasing traffic than than giant brands like Gucci and you know Procter yeah, Gamble. So. Really, uh, I would love for somebody to correct me on that. Okay, but as far as I know, that is the case. Fascinating, and you hear the you hear a defense of fraud is priced into the system but that's probably that's probably not true because you know if you know if what you said is correct i, I guess we don't know that for sure but well, whether or not it's correct you know even frito lay and procter and gamble aren't pricing in fraud they don't know fraud exists there's information asymmetry right um but again they do have people that let's say in the next two years whose job it is to inform them of that their agencies or their marketing teams know, that will come back to them. Uh, that same information is not going to be as accessible to a smaller advertiser. There are these ad exchanges that we haven't really talked a lot about. We haven't talked about the middle layers. Um, OpenX, AppNexus, these are huge businesses that most people haven't ever heard of. What purpose do they serve? They serve a purpose to connect ad suppliers, which are websites with ad spaces, uh, with advertisers who want to target the users visiting those sites. And basically, they process transactions. Uh, you know, they basically execute what we call RTB, real-time bidding, which is a 100 to 150 millisecond 
second price auction, meaning that the highest, highest bidder wins and they pay the price that the second highest bidder was willing to pay. And uh, another set of players is these DSPs, SSPs. Uh, these are demand-side providers, supply-side providers. These sit between the publisher and the advertiser. Can you explain, explain these layers? Also explain how these interact with the exchanges too. So the DSP sits on the buy side of the exchange. So the demand-side platform because they you know, execute the advertising demand. And then the supply side platforms sit on the sell side of the exchange, which is the websites. So you know, you're basically just looking at multiple layers because the, agent, the uh, exchange is processing, it's holding the auctions and it's processing the transaction. And then it's actually taking the creative you know, file, which, whether it's an image or a video, and placing it onto the ad slot coming from the supply side. The thing is, publisher the publishers are aggregated into the supply side platforms. So, you know, one supply side platform represents, let's say, you know, just for example, a thousand different websites. And then there's 10 supply side platforms that plug into the exchange. So now you have, you know, 10,000 sites coming into the exchange. And then the DSPs are executing campaigns for let's say, you know, 10 advertisers each. Lots of different campaigns, but let's say 10 advertisers. And then you have 10 DSPs. So now you have 100 advertisers who have 10,000 different sites available to them. And that's the purpose of the exchange. So the DSPs aggregate demand, SSPs aggregate supply. It sounds like this is is a, a good economic system or makes i mean that makes economic sense to me um is you would you say that's accurate like is this because it seems like that's that's pretty efficient i i think it is efficient uh you know the problem is there's still a, a few changes that need to be made in the incentive structures to incentivize quality on all sides so what i mean by that is most of these, what I refer to as ad tech layers, so you know they're not doing the creative work, they're not doing this strategy necessarily. They're focused on executing the media buy or executing the selling of this ad space. They charge um, either a you know they charge a rev share or a you know buy side fee, and then they make money on ad serving. So per impression transacted, they make a small fee. So the problem with that is that whether um, you know these ad spaces are ten dollar CPMs, you know ten dollars for a thousand ad slots, or whether it's ten cents per thousand, which is very low quality, they're making the same money. So they're not incentivized necessarily towards quality right now. And if you know if you have many many more of the ten cent uh, CPM impressions to fill those ad budgets, you're going to see a lot more volume which means you're going to make more ad serving fees. And I think that's where some changes need to be made across the industry. Right. And I want to talk more about that because so you have started, you left your uh, job as um, sketchy, sketchy artist (laughs) or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, black, black hat ad tech uh, person. Look, uh, and don't, don't get me wrong. Like, I think, you know, when I was talking to you about it, you know, 
you were you were fascinated by the industry. I mean, it's like the same. It's the same reason I went into you know my first job out of school. I went into um, like a, a options trading place, and and I was like, you know, there is a chance that there is sketchiness that I'm going to see, like at the company that I, I worked. At. I didn't, by the way, I didn't see anything sketchy there, but I was just so fascinated. You know, there's something so interesting about markets and highly automated markets, and when you get into the advertising game, you realize how much of it is just like Wall Street. Um, so you've started this company called the DAR Method, and what you've explained to me is you're kind of a consultant. You basically go to these advertising conferences and make advertisers feel really sad. What are you trying to do with the DAR Method? Uh, my goal is to educate um, all pieces of the advertising ecosystem on the logistics of fraud. Um, the problem right now is, you know, you don't have opportunities for people that are spending money on advertising to learn very clearly what the dangers are in terms of fraud. And basically, you know, like my tagline is, you know, advertising should be, you know, effective, accountable, and understood. So, you know, sure, you can come up with the greatest targeting strategy and, you know, execution plan and, you know, media, media buying plan. But if you're just, you know, seeing 40% of that money go to waste, you don't necessarily even know how effective your advertising is. You know, you could have come up with the greatest campaign that if you were only buying human traffic would have, you know, won some advertising award. But because your supply chain is not clean, you're never going to understand how effective your campaign was actually going to be. So, um, giving advertisers an opportunity to understand that, you know, knowing that I can provide firsthand knowledge of how it's done and also, you know, don't believe everything you read. You know, there's a lot of companies um, and, you know, this is an investigation we're working on right now, so I can't name the company yet, but I would love to give it to you and your listeners at a later point that there's this company that sells blatant fraudulent traffic that is designed to pass major filters for sub-penny click prices. I'm talking about six-tenths of a cent per click, three-tenths of a cent per click, depending on the filter, that you know now is providing advertising, click advertising to the US government. So you know it's this like whole lack of awareness. And sure, we can, you know, and I've written about this, is that people can justify, you know, like in our deep subconscious, we're just like, you know, even if you work in an agency, you're like, well, these big brands like Kraft or, you know, Pepsi, like they have so much money, you know, what's a little waste? Right. And, and the people sp- spending the money are some digital marketing person right. lower down the chain. Money. Yeah, it's not their yeah. money. Um, you know, but if, uh, if you talk about those local advertisers, you know, if you don't actually fix the actual supply chain and the way advertising is executed, you know, do you have these small businesses that are con- going to continue to get screwed by you know, just inherent problems in the system, and they're not even going to know. And, you know, it's like, I I think that's where uh, the problem lies, uh, more than just, you know, um, trying to fix things for big brands. Uh, Because if you fix the system, it's going to be better for the small businesses. It sounds like the advertisers that you talk to are somewhat receptive. Is that accurate? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I make this joke that, you know, when I give a speech or a presentation, I know I did a good job if everybody looks frustrated and depressed at the end. 
um, because I'm not delivering good news. Um, but, you know, part of my point is that now you understand what to look for. And so your perspective on approaching the problem is going to be entirely different. You're going to ask smarter questions, better questions. You're going to demand better answers to those questions. Because if you didn't really understand how fraud works, who is doing it? Like I provide, you know, very hands-on examples. I show my own report that I've done where I created a fake site uh, earlier this year, um, got it approved on an ad platform, sold ads into it, and I showed that I was buying all of this, you know, one-tenth of a cent per click data center traffic. Then you understand, okay, well, you know, I can ask better questions because an agency, let's say on behalf of their clients, was asking their, you know, technology partners, okay, what are you doing about fraud? If you didn't know enough about fraud, then you could be given any answer and you would have to accept it. And let's be and clear. I think that's what needs to change. Let's be clear. Your example, the hilarious part of it is you're buying data center traffic, which should be really, really easy to identify. You know, it's like coming from a, from a virtualized server on Amazon somewhere. Human traffic doesn't look like that. There's one question of, you know, whether it's detectable or not, you know, how sophisticated the creators of the traffic are. Right. Uh, you know, that the degree of which that played into it is debatable. Um, the second issue there is, you know, I've heard lots of justifications for allowing data center traffic. Uh, you know, I can't speak on this, you know, authoritatively, but what I get told as a justification is there's lots of corporate setups where they use data center proxies for all of their employees. And so advertisers shouldn't be shut off from showing ads to people who are at work from you know nine to five or nine to six every day, just because they're accessing the internet through data center um, connection. What do the ad tech companies say? Like when you have, because you said you're trying to change the whole industry what are the what was the response from the ad tech companies? Uh, I hope that's not how it came across, but uh, yeah, that guess yeah, that's that's the grander goal. Um, ad tech companies, you know, it really depends, um, and it really depends on the people at the top of these companies and how proactive they want to be. Um, there's plenty of companies that have taken public stances against fraud, and you know, they have taken steps um, just to kind of boot off bad players. Um, the problem with that is, you know, it's cat and mouse. You know, they, it's not like they're banned for life. They, you know, they lose their account. They'll find another account. Uh, they'll go under somebody else's account. Some, you know, they'll find a way around. Um, ad tech companies, I recently, you know, was very surprised. I'd never expected a supply side platform to reach out to me, but I did work with a supply side platform and I mean, it was amazing, uh, you know, how receptive they were how much initiative they had taken internally to kind of promote quality as a differentiator between them and their competitors, even though they know that in the short term, it's not going to be beneficial. Their lifeblood is to have as much advertising inventory available as possible for buyers, but they're willing to compromise on the short-term revenue for the long-term goal of you know, being known for their quality, which is only going to bring in more buyers and those buyers are going to pay higher premium rates to be able to buy in that network. So uh, I think it's shifting slowly because, you know, again, I think it just depends on who's running the company and, you know, whether they're exposed to the right information, are they made aware of, you know, what this problem is and how it's kind of 
you know, affecting the entire market. Uh, I think it's shifting slowly. Do you get responses from people who are in denial or disbelief and they're like, you're a conspiracy theorist, you have no data to back oh, any I've of this? Been, I've been called, I've been called a blat- just blatantly, I've been called an idiot, uh, I've been called a fear monger, I've been called a liar, you know, because like I talk a lot about these financial incentives and I've been called out and it's very fair for them to say, you know, well, you're trying to make the problem seem bigger than it is because you want clients to hire you. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, sure, but I also just put my research and all my, you know, reports out there. It's not that I'm like, you know, here, buy a five ninety nine subscription to access my pamphlet. You know, it's just out there. Like, the education is free. Now, if you want, you know, and I'm not trying to make a plug for my <laughs> consultancy, but now if you want, like, hands-on audits and, you know, process improvement, those types of things, then that's where my business lies. But in the education, you know, like, if I'm hiding information from people, then what's the point of doing, you know, anything that I'm doing? Well, it's like, why, and the onus is not, I don't see the onus being on you any more than it is on the ad tech companies. I mean, you hear these absurd numbers like, oh, 70% of advertising is seen by bots, or 80% is seen by bots, or 50% is seen by bots. Those numbers don't come from anywhere reliable, and yet... So it's sampling, yeah. Yeah, sampling, but like, that's not... It's a problem with... I think mean, that's just basic human consumption of <laughs> information. Yeah, you, know, you see this a lot with these like fake news articles that are you know going around now. People, are, oh, how did this fake news get so big? It's because we are kind of wired to believe what we're told. We like have some type of inherent trust that okay, well, you know, if somebody's saying it, like why would they lie? And with this, it's not that they're even trying to lie. It's that they took one sample of traffic. A, let's say even statistically big enough to, you know, be quantitatively representative of the entire market. Then they used one detection method, a single detection method. There's lots of detection methods on how to define a bot or a human. They used one detection method to say this is the rate of bot traffic in this sample, and then they extrapolated that to the entire market. Right, and that is like Mark Zuckerberg saying, "It's crazy to believe that Facebook." Fake the fake news on Facebook impacted the election. It's like, well, okay, if it's so crazy, then why don't you show us your audit methods? And there aren't any because, like, what? I mean, it was never a problem until now. It was never considered a problem until now. Well, I mean, there could there could be audit methods. I mean, they you know Facebook has a you know an all well not an all seeing eye, but they you know I'm sure they have some internal scrutiny. I'm sure they have done some stuff where they're they're. Uh, interest you know introspection into you know how much fake news they think i don't think it's a systematic process though i don't think it's you know i think there's uh from the reports that have come out and you know what i know at facebook is that there were teams that were doing these things but it wasn't part of the corporate you know structure and behavior just like constantly remove these things Right, but and and the fact that he that he was willing to say it's crazy to believe that this had a significant impact, I think is is indicative of how far. Because it's, it's like, oh, I mean, the thing is, fake news to me seems easier to police than than advertising fraud. There's a lot more uh, little players that uh, seem semi trustworthy in the advertising business than there are in the the news business, like the news. You know, there's 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 a smaller subset of like reliable um, news outlets, and and yet Zuckerberg's statement on fake news was so tone deaf to reality. 
It's like it's- yeah. Uh, I mean, you got to give the guy a little bit of slack. Uh, you know, he's the CEO, and you know, naturally, CEOs are a little bit disconnected from what's happening on the ground. You know, he's he's part of his day gets taken up by you know what's going on with WhatsApp in the Indian market. You know, how are we going to grow that? How are we collecting enough data? Are we organizing the data properly? You know, but you have we have to just like give him that little bit of credit. Oh yeah. That cuz he like again and I give a lot of credit to the entire team at Facebook for just shutting down a 400 million dollar video ad network that they found to be fraudulent. Sure. You know, Absolutely. So, like I do I do give him the credit, but that, I I agree with you that that statement, you know, like I don't think there's a single person that didn't roll their eyes <laughs> when they heard him say that. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean I'm a I'm a fan of Facebook. Um a fan of Zuckerberg. Like I think in the long run, you could see the advantages of Facebook being somewhat of a walled garden uh, to with with you know with the with a single account policy for individuals in terms of getting highly reliable advertising. And I do think that the other shoe is going to drop eventually on this fraud stuff. Yeah, um, I agree. Like it seems like right now we're kind of in the you know if you I'd like to draw the parallel between the 2008 mortgage crisis where you know you had this institutional herd mentality for like six years or seven years or something where it's you know we oh we had these supposedly uncorrelated mortgage-backed securities and they all turned out to be worthless because they were actually correlated and today media buyers you know they're purchasing all this traffic and they're willing to say oh 50 percent of our advertising spend is wasted we just don't know what 50 percent they love saying that yeah i heard that but the you know the truth is that Maybe they're wasting closer to 80, 90, 99% of their ad budget. and Maybe some smarter advertiser is only wasting 10 and you're the person that's wasting 80. You know, like it, it, if you just take that average, you know, there's 50% or 40% being wasted total. If I say I'm only wasting 10, there's somebody else wasting 70%. Why doesn't the pr- – does the press report on this? I remember we, we, we talked a little bit at lunch a while ago about like, oh, press potentially getting involved in this. Why doesn't the press report on this very much? I think it's a very misunderstood problem. Um, you know, it's, and this is the problem. And I sympathize with specifically the advertising trade press because it's not that people just lay a ton of information down at their feet and are like, here, please, we'd like to be open and upfront with you. You know, here, can you honestly report on problems with the industry? That does not happen. They kind of have to scrounge for tidbits of reliable information from professionals in the industry and then put together these reports and articles for the rest of the industry to kind of take, you know, as gospel, which is scary sometimes because I have people that will, you know, argue with me that that's not how fraud is done. I read this article that said this and I'm like, well, okay, but you read an article and again, no offense to anybody in the trade press. I have a lot of respect for them, but they are journalists. They are not ad fraud specialists. So they are giving you the best representation of what they understand. And you have to take it as that. You can't take it as, you know, this is a, you know, expert report written by a specialist. This is a journalist giving you the best representation of the information on a very, you know, misunderstood and evasive topic. And that's how I think people should look at what they read. Do you think there is any suppression? Is are you know Google and Facebook suppressing? Like, I mean, are there actually people writing about this and it just gets suppressed? Yes, somehow? yes. Uh, there 
are reports that have been suppressed, um, academic reports that have been suppressed. And, you know, I can't publicly go into detail and disclose, you know, exactly what happened, but that has happened and it's scary that way. Um, and, you know, I, and I don't think it's the heads of the companies that made those decisions. It's some mid to senior level, you know, director that heard that that was out, squashed it because they felt that was their duty. And that, that is very scary to me, uh, the suppression of information, because it's not in people's financial interest. And that's, you know, you related it to the 2008 crash. We have a lot of ad tech companies going public. And if you look at the trends uh, so far with these ad tech companies, it has not been promising. But you see more and more that are, you know, going public. And you can't necessarily even blame the, you know, CEO or the directors because there's VCs that pumped tens of millions of dollars into those companies and they want their return. They are not going to be like, oh, well, you know, I guess I'll just wait for my payout because I want the industry to have, you know, higher quality standards before we, you know, open up these uh, shares to the public. That's just not how they think. They're a financial institution trying to get their money back. The narrative around this bot traffic that ultimately is viewing these ads is that the bot traffic is coming from China or Russia or it's organized crime. Where is it coming from? Is it coming from miscreant teenagers? Is it coming from a programmer in a college dorm? Who is the source? All of the above. All of the above. Yes. I mean, that's the most comprehensive answer. Yeah, we have this, I don't really get it, but like, you know, you know, and there's obviously things with Putin and uh, <laughs> suppression of you know freedom of press and speech in Russia, but we have this like some weird inherent thing that like we just started blaming Russia off the cuff as being the source for this problem, and I just don't get it. I mean, it's like it's like it's, it's like the most easily acceptable answer for some reason, and people Cause, just because Russians are like, good oh, programmers. Yeah, okay, that sounds right. Right. You know, it's like all the hackers live in Russia and like fraud is only done by hackers and that's just mm-hmm. not the case. And, you know, part of what I try to explain to people is to actually dig into these fraudulent ad networks. You know, there's a stay at home dad with three kids who's a fantastic husband and a fantastic father and just a great guy. And he loves to, you know, rock climb and, you know, like go to the gym and mm-hmm. he runs a fraudulent ad network. He sources... Yep bots by distributing malware and he runs a fraudulent ad network and you know he's not sitting in a basement he's got a nice home office you know just to paint you the picture like this person actually exists yeah and that sounds and like it's a pretty, not it sounds like a pretty good life with a hoodie right yeah it is a good life and there's no consequences he's not no going to go to jail for this yep not going to get sued for this the people that he works with his buyers are legitimate companies that continue to buy from him because he creates high quality, high revenue generating traffic. And because he's, you this know, is not a hacker problem was in that. So that's like, what's an interesting byproduct of the SSP DSP layers of abstraction between the publishers and the advertisers is you, you get, you get removed, you accountability gets subtracted. Um, okay. So, uh, let's, let's close off, um, plenty of interesting stuff we've talked about um, plenty more we could have covered what are the biggest changes that you're seeing in this industry in the advertising industry um, like what's coming up on the horizon um, I think agencies are going to get a heavy metaphorical kick in the teeth 
because you know I, there's a lot of these like transparency reports coming out, and you know there's been a lot of seeds of doubt um, planted into the agency. So, so brands. for people for people who don't know, I'm Gucci. I go to an agency yeah. and I say, hey, buy me you know, $100,000 worth of the cyber, the cyber advertising, right. and the agency right. does something. Right. And that something is is a, a waste of money many times. So basically, agencies are hired as specialists to do the planning and execution of advertising. So, you know, they, they are basically compensated for knowing the market, and also having creative people, like a team of creatives on staff, that make a can of Pepsi look extremely refreshing in a 300 by 250 pixel video ad on my phone. That's what they're paid for. The problem and what you know, advertisers are waking up to is that agencies are not incentivized financially to act in their best interests. They're paid on a margin basis. So you know, agencies are, if I give, if I say to an agency, I want to spend a million dollars on advertising, I'm also going to pay a 10% fee on that, a margin fee to the agency for the actual execution. So I pay them a hundred grand to execute that media buy. The problem right now is given this fraud situation, agencies have never had an incentive financially to spend less on behalf of their advertiser clients, because if they spend less, that percentage drops like you know that 10 percent went from 100,000 to 80,000 now they made 20,000 less and you know what they're going to move to a smaller office they're going to fire employees like that's you know that's why you see so many hiring and firing sprees at ad agencies because it's so volatile that way the problem is that advertisers need to realize that you you need to compensate people fairly to do their jobs. And this goes all the way down. And this is what I think is going to change in the next year or two is you're going to see contract and compensation structures change to get incentives in line with quality. Because what happens when the agency makes less money, they negotiate lower rates with the actual media suppliers. And when media suppliers are paid lower rates, they have to make up the money somewhere they have an incentive to buy traffic. And so volume gets bigger, low, rates get lower, and everybody has to you know, basically make their bottom line. They have shareholders, they have investors, they have employees, and everybody's being squeezed from the top down. And I think that's going to change over the next couple of years. All right. So winter is coming. Um, Shalin, <laughs> yes, it is. Shalin it's, it's been really great talking to you. I think this is one of the best episodes I've yeah, done. Well. I, I, I really, I really like, um, like what you're doing. And um, yeah, feel free to come back on the show if you got some. I, I'd be happy to. I, I, should, I should have some interesting updates for you guys in you know, the next couple of months. Awesome. <laughs>